0: Amen. Church, while well, you're having a seat, so grateful that you're here. If I've not met you, uh, welcome. want to say welcome. It's thrilled that you were with us. My name is Sean, one of the pastors here at Risen Church. If you have your Bibles, grab them open to Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 8, or if you have a phone, or we'll have the, the verses on the screen too, but would encourage you to bring your Bibles, to have your Bibles here. If you don't own a Bible, Um, Actually, they're not out today, so we don't have any to give to you. Come to me afterwards, and I'll get you a Bible. They're in the closet. We're using them for communion tables, set up, tear down, multi-purpose, everything. So uh, we are continuing, if you're new, on our series in Exodus where we're seeing God form for himself a people. We're seeing God work through Moses. We're seeing uh, God reconciling and saving a people for his own possession, for his glory speak to his people. God is revealing himself to his people. Last week, we started in the plagues. And so we were in Exodus, I think, 5, 6, and 7, and we began with the plagues, and we saw um, this amazing sort of cycle of these plagues that we're going to be in for the next few weeks, and we saw the plague of the staff of God given to Moses. Moses. And Moses throws his staff down, and Moses' staff gobbles up the other staffs that were thrown down in a foreshadowing of things to come. And then we see uh, the first plague of the Nile River, and God turns the Nile into blood, okay? God turns the Nile into blood, So I won't unpack all that, go back and listen last last week. My brother Michael did a fantastic job unpacking that first plague. And today we're gonna be in the second plague, which is, albeit, one of the strangest ones. It's almost comical because it's the plague of the frogs, right? So we're gonna read about thousands and thousands and thousands seemingly of frogs that just appear all over the place. They're overrun with frogs. And so as we... Walk through this text here this morning. I have one question for us. And as we walk through all of these plagues, I think this is going to be a helpful question for all of us to consider. It's a simple question, but it is a massive question. Who is your God? Who is your God? And that question is really the most important question that you will ever answer in your life. Who is your God? Secondly, maybe who is my spouse? But that one is not nearly as important as who is my God. Every one of us worships something. But the question this morning for us, and I think the question that Exodus and the plagues helps us to ask even of ourselves is who are you worshiping? Who are you worshiping? So Exodus was in part written to show us the true and living God, who this true and living God is. And so when you get to these plagues, when you get to these signs, when you get to these amazing things that we read in chapters 7 through 12, I would think that if a lot of us in here, you're a modern person, you're sort of a modern thinker, you kind of hit text like this in Exodus 7 through 12, and you may be tempted to think... Are you kidding me? Are we really looking at the plagues in Exodus and actually talking about that still? Are you joking? Why are we talking about that? I mean, come on—it's filled with these bizarre scenes. We've got blood. We've got frogs for crying out loud. We've then the next one that Michael—he's got gnats, right? We have Texans know a little thing about gnats. We know terror. it's like really—are we really going to spend weeks talking about all these things? Yes. Spoiler alert, we are. And secondarily, side note, when you are a pastor and you are delved into studying the plagues for weeks on end, you begin having very strange dreams, okay? (laughs) So if something weird happens, like it's just, there's a lot of crazy things. So I texted Michael, I was like, dude, I'm dreaming about frogs. I don't know what's happening here, so pray for me. But as you read these, you may be thinking, is God just like a jerk? Does he just like messing with people? Is he just sort of like the big brother in the sky with the magnifying glass? And is he just sort of picking on the Egyptians and he just wants to sort of mess with these people? Um, I think that as we, as we study these and as we look at these, we can't just dismiss these as outlandish stories or even folklore because there's something to understand about these plagues even. And so before I jump in and read the passage, I wanted us to wrap our minds around and get a sense and a framework for what is it that's happening here. God is not just doing these things to pester and mess with the Egyptians. God is actually, in each of these plagues, judging the false gods of the Egyptians. He is God is systematically destroying the false gods of the Egyptians through each plague, right? So he's, he's doing much more than just sending these random plagues on a country right, are messing with the people. In fact, in Exodus 12, 12, we learn that he's not just judging the Egyptians, he's judging the gods of the Egyptians. Listen to Exodus 12, 12. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So God sees a people worshiping all these other gods. He says, I'm gonna show them who the one true God is. We read the same thing in Numbers 33, verse four, talking about the Exodus. Exodus 33, four. On their gods also the Lord executed judgment. So God is seeing a people worship other gods, and he says, I'm gonna show them the one true God is. And all of these plagues that fall down on the Egyptian people, and even at the same time, they're falling on the Israelites, who were their servants, which Michael brought up last week, but all of these plagues that fall on the Egyptians fall on the areas of life that are to be protected by the gods of Egypt that they would pray to, that they would make sacrifice to, and that they would give homage to. At the time, there were about 80 major gods in Egypt that were worshiped, and all 80 of them centered around the three natural forces of Egyptian life. The Nile River, The land and the sky. The first two plagues, the plague of the Nile and the blood and the one we're going to be in today, the frogs, were the first two uh, plagues that were directed at the Nile River. God dismantling their hope in this great abundant river. And then the next ones we're going to see on the land and then the sky, which culminates in the death of the firstborn as we are going to walk through all of these. And so when we read these plagues, we come face to face with a God who is wanting everyone to know that he and he alone is God and worthy of worship. So the plagues are an answer to the question from Pharaoh, if you've been with us, in Exodus chapter 5. Remember what, ex, remember what Pharaoh, the Pharaoh asks or the, the question he begs in 5.2? He says this, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Who is this, the Lord? And let Israel go. I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. And God says, I'm going to show you who I am. The plagues are an answer to this question, and it's a question that's still asked today. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And God, in Exodus, and through these plagues, without a shadow of a doubt, is going to show us exactly who he is. And so God says, I'm gonna show you, and I'm gonna crush your gods in the process of showing you who I am, that they will not deliver what you think they're going to deliver, and as a result, it should be no—it should be no surprise to us that when we get to the Ten Commandments, the very first commandment that God wants His people to know and live by, and understand, and have seep into their hearts and minds, "You shall have no other gods before Me." No other gods. So he's crushing the idols of Egypt. And then when the Ten Commandments come, he says, this is what I've been telling you guys the whole time. Martin Luther says that if we get that first commandment right, that you shall have no other gods before me, you'll get all the other commandments right. He says they all build on that very first one. So we are to see and know And love the God who has sought us, who has redeemed us, who points us to his glory. But our great problem, church, today, yes, we're looking at an old story, but our great problem today is that we are prone to worshiping other gods. We just sang about it. We are prone to wander. We're prone to wander. Even Israel is prone to wander. They don't get it all right here, they're not the heroes of the story. God is. When we get to Joshua chapter 24, when he's making his final speech, listen to this. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods of your fathers that your fathers served before you beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. He's looking back and said, your fathers in Egypt in the river served other gods. Put away these false gods and serve the Lord. Worship the Lord. So the Israelites themselves are not immune to this idolatry. We are not immune to this idolatry. We are prone to wonder. We bow to false gods. Our hearts, as Spurgeon says, are idol-making factories. We worship. We long to worship something. We long to worship someone. And the big question for you and I today is... Who will we worship? Isaiah 42, eight, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. John chapter 5, Jesus identifies himself with the name of God, that when Moses asks who God is and the burning bush returns, John identifies himself with, or Jesus identifies himself with this name in John 8. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is what Jesus says about God and eternal life in John 17. And this is eternal life that they would know you, one true God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one whom you have sent. There is one God, and we need to embrace him through the mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, when writing his letter to the Thessalonians, says this, he says, this is conversion. You wanna know what salvation is? You wanna know what conversion is? This is what it is. It is turning from your idols to the living God. This is huge. This is not some old story. This is is our battle today, right now. Every day when you put your feet on the floor, who is your God and who will you worship? Because there are so many gods vying for your attention today. And so as we travel these seemingly bizarre narratives Yes, they are. Let's keep that question in mind. Who is your God? God wants us to see him. He wants us to see his glory. And he wants us to be a people passionate about his glory. Um, So God is going to step into that question in Exodus chapter 8 in our story today. The question the Pharaoh asked, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Now, I want to stop real quick before we continue on even more and even more of this. And I want you, it's easy for us to think, oh, yeah, the culture is full of all these other gods. And I wish all those other gods wouldn't be here. But I want us to evaluate our own hearts here this morning. My guess is that as you evaluate your life and as you think about where you spend your time and where you think your happiness and your comforts and all the things that we put our hand to come from is that there are areas in our lives that the Lord is calling us to walk in obedience to him, but we simply have our heels dug in and we don't want to listen to his voice. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And there are areas even in our own hearts that are rebellious against The call of God that we are not being obedient to following and what he's calling us to and we dig our heels in and we ask that very same question. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? We're gonna see as we walk through this that God's judgments are real but they're also mingled with his mercy. Yeah. And I would suppose that some of us in here when we start reading these and we start encountering these and we we encounter God's judgment and wrath, we think, oh, I don't like talking about that stuff. See, God's wrath and his judgment has kind of gone out of fashion in today's church. But when we protest against God's judgment and his justice, what we do is we are minimizing our sin. Well, it's not a big deal. And when you minimize your sin, you minimize God's blazing holiness that we read about in the burning bush. That Moses had to unsandal his feet to even approach this living God. And when we minimize our sin and we minimize God's holiness, these stories make no sense to us. And we dismiss them. Church, do not dismiss them. God's judgments are real. His wrath is real. His mercy is always intermingled in it, though. And we're going to journey through it together. Exodus 8, 1 through 15. Here we go. The plague of the frogs. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all of your country with frogs. Frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into your houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on your servants. Don't you love that progression? It's like, it kind of gets like, oh, okay, that's strange, frogs in the Nile. And he's like, the frogs are going to be in the Nile, then they're going to go in your homes, and they're going to be in your bed, and then they're going to be in your kneading bowls, they're going to be in your ovens, and he ends with, and they're going to be on you. (laughs) That's how pervasive the frogs are going to be. They're going to be everywhere. Like, you're going to go to make some bread, the frog's in there. You're going to go lay down in your bed. The frogs are in there. They're already on your hair. They're in your mouth. They're everywhere, right? You can't get away from the frogs. Verse 5, and the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make the frogs come up on the land of Egypt. And so Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up. And they covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made the frogs come up out of the land of Egypt. So we're gonna see this a lot. Well, not too many more times. I think this may be the last time that the magicians are able to replicate the plague. But here, they just made more frogs. We don't need any more frogs, right? It's just like, why did you make more of them? Take them away, there's a billion frogs and you just made more frogs. And so it's not really addressed, but I would imagine the Pharaoh was pretty upset by this based on the very next passage. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and pled with them, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people, and I will let your people go and sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off for you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Pharaoh, tomorrow. Naturally, as soon as possible. And Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs. And he had agreed with Pharaoh, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. And the frogs died out in the houses and in the courtyards and in the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. Can you believe that word is in the Bible? The land stank. (laughs) That's amazing. ESV, you gotta love that one. Verse 15 is huge, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, no one's really scared of a frog, so it almost seems kind of like a funny plague, but it's just kind of like the Alfred Hitchcock movie, the, the birds, right? No one's afraid of a bird. People go on vacations to take pictures of birds, and people have bird feeders, and people love birds. My kids love birds. We used to fill the feeders until I realized I was just wasting dollars as they fell onto the ground. But it's like, but 10,000 birds coming at you is terrifying. This is what's happening here with the frogs. There's, no one's afraid of a frog, but a million frogs is terrifying, right? So there's so many frogs, and what's, Going on here is God is dismantling, remember, the false gods of Egypt. And the, flag, the plague of the, of the frogs represents one of the gods they worshiped. And the god that the frog represented was the Egyptian god Heket. Heket. Let me show you a picture of Heket. I think we have a picture. It may have made it. Did it make it? So Heket has a frog head and a woman's body. And in this one, carrying two knives, which is frightening, right? So the Egyptian god Heket was this frog creature with a human body. And uh, Heket came from the Nile. She was worshipped. Heket was actually the wife in the Egyptian god order of the creator god. And Heket's job was to breathe life into that which the creator made. So Heket, the frog god, would breathe the breath of life on all the things the creator god made, and these gods both existed in the Nile River. They were birthed from the Nile River, and so she was looked at as the god and symbol of power, of fertility, and of fruitfulness, right? So this would be fruitfulness or fertility and childbirth, because childbirth was terrifying in the ancient world. There was a lot of death involved, and so you would pray to Heket. You would sacrifice to Heket for a successful childbirth. You would pray and sacrifice to Heket for success and fruitfulness in business and in trade and in commerce that the gods would show favor on you and multiply your efforts because she was the goddess of fertility and fruitfulness. And God in his mercy knows that this is a lie. And he's showing us and he's showing the Egyptian people and he's showing the Israelites that the only fruit we can bear with our lives and fruit that lasts is one that is birthed out of obedience and surrender to God. And we know through the mediator and our risen Lord Jesus Christ, all other forms of fruitlessness, fruitfulness are fruitless. Uh, There's an analogy that stuck with me. I can't remember who said it. But all other forms of fruitfulness outside of of obeying and walking in the spirit of God is like stapling apples to an apple tree and calling it fruitful. Eventually, they will rot and fall because they are not connected to the eternal vine, to the eternal tree. See, God is going to begin, even in all of these plagues, to press in on this ruthlessly on the Egyptian people. And I think that living where we live today, in the culture that we live in today, we have people, many of us here are guilty of it. I am guilty of it in certain areas, of spending our lives for things that the book of even Ecclesiastes will call meaningless. Meaningless that we think they will give us ultimate joy, ultimate pleasure, ultimate purpose, ultimate belonging, and they don't. See, even us as believers, we're tempted to love and trust and follow and even make great sacrifices for things other than the one true living God. Because we think that's what our hearts need. So church, please do not think as we look at these stories of the plague of frogs and think we are so distant from those foolish Egyptians. (laughs) We are not. We are not. The human heart has not changed at all. Our gods just have different names. So here's my question for you and I. We see a bowing to a river god that has a frog head and a woman's body seems foolish and silly. And it seems antiquated and it seems like, what? But church, who are you looking to to provide for your needs today? Where is your hope placed? Who are you looking to Who are you bowing to? Who are you serving? See, many of us, we place our hope in the stock market, although not lately, I guess, or economic growth, or a new administration, or a new leader, or a new whatever. Who are you looking to to provide for your needs? Church, look only to God. He is good. Let me just, I think for, in order for us to grasp what is happening here in Egypt, I want to give a modern day equivalent. This is, my, this is just my commentary on this. this is, but what's happening to the Egyptians with these plagues is so severe. And so here's, I, I believe, what's, what's happening. Now remember, the Nile was turned into blood, and then there's frogs everywhere. Right, So this is, the, this is what's happening on the ground level with the Egyptian people. So remember, the Nile was the source of power, was the source of wealth, was the source of food, was the source of water, was the source of commerce and trade. The Nile was life. So I think the modern-day equivalent right here, if, we, if we're going like to make it in Texas terms, if you will, is if every oil well and oil basin dried up and was gone. The pump jacks quit running. I don't think we use those anymore, but that's about as far as I know, right? There was no more food in the grocery store. The supply chain got even more broken. Imagine a global pandemic even happened, if you will, in the midst of all this. So the oil dried up. There's no food in the store. The stock market collapsed. There was no clean drinking water. And to top it off, we're overrun with a million frogs. That's what's going on here in Egypt. That's what's going on here. And they freaking out. They don't know what's happening. And that's why they're begging Moses say, plead with your God to make it stop. Because God is removing everything that they place their hope in. And he's wanting them to see him. And then we see some heartbreaking things in this passage. Let's look again to verse 15. I'm going to spend the rest of my time, not much more. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite. He hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Um, The world is imploding on Pharaoh and his people. He doesn't know what to do. His gods are being dismantled. They're praying to their gods and their gods are doing nothing and showing themselves to be fruitless, though they're the God of fruitfulness and Moses intercedes and pleads with God, and the frogs finally cease. And here, Pharaoh, during this respite, hardens his heart. And so, church, a lot of times in our lives, we are, God uses moments in our lives, tragedies even. God uses these catastrophic events in our lives to sort of jar us and wake us up to the reality of who he is. A lot of, many of you in this room had moments like that in your life where maybe things were not looking good, you had nowhere else to turn to, you could cling to nothing on your own and you reached out to God. And that is a good and beautiful thing. And God began to make inroads in your life and God began to um, show up. These these moments where Things are not going, the Puritans had a word for it, they're called severe mercies. When your life feels so severe, everything in your life feels like it's not going like you had hoped, it's really the mercy of God because you finally hit the bottom and it's only then that you're gonna reach up. A Severe mercy. Many of you are in this room because of moments like this. And these moments are huge because in these moments we feel like we've lost control. See, before we were managing things just fine. You know, we're eating good food, we have good jobs, Uh, we're eating all the right things. Occasionally we put kale in our smoothies so we know we're going to be healthy and live forever. We use all the right essential oils on the left earlobe and we can, you know, live forever because of those things. And we're just, we're in control. Sorry, that one's a little too close to my home. Um, We're in control. And everything's going fine, but then our world gets turned upside down. And when the illusion of control evaporates, when we get sick, we get fired, the relationships start to fall apart, there's heartbreak, that's when things start looking hopeless. And there's these times when people turn to the Lord for help and it's beautiful and it's good. Jesus, help me. Jesus, show up and you cling to Christ and then God begins to make inroads and God begins to free you from these really difficult, hard circumstances because of his grace, because of his mercy, because of the body of Christ rallying around you and helping and holding you up and lifting you up and pointing you to Jesus and you've repented and you've seen and then all of a sudden your circumstances go back to being good and you regain control of all the areas of your life. And we, just like Pharaoh, when there is a respite from those moments, are prone to thinking, I did it. I'm such a great leader. I got myself out of this jam. I beat the sickness. I'm the greatest parent ever and turned the way, I don't think any parents ever said that, but, right, but I turned the wayward one around and now we're on the right track. I've really figured it out. I'm the captain of my ship now, again. I'm the king of the castle. I knew I could do this. I doubled the amount of spinach and I doubled the amount of thieves' oil, and it's all smooth sailing from here on out, right? It's gonna be beautiful. And we are so quick to forget what the Lord has done. That's what Pharaoh did. His world was falling apart. And he goes to the mediator, Moses, and says, plead to your Lord. And God gives him a respite when he had no one else to turn to, when all of his magicians proved to be empty wells that were dry. And then the moment his circumstances got a little bit better, he's like, greatest leader ever. I did it and he hardens his heart toward God and elevates himself. Um, Are you guilty of this? When things get hard, do you run after God asking for help? And the second there is any respite, are you too quick to give yourself the credit for navigating that hard situation? Or do you give God the honor and glory he deserves, and run after him. Church, I think today's response is gonna be appropriate, and it's a time for us to consider what we just read in this question. Who is your God? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? In those areas in our life where we have bowed to idols, we don't name them like silly frog gods, but we have different names for them and we can repent and turn to the one true living God through repentance and faith that Jesus is the one true God. He is the one true king. He is the one that we need. He is the one that we run after. He is the one that will provide for us. He is our ultimate comfort. He is the one that is powerful when I am not. Church, our greatest need is Christ. Not Political systems, not wealth, not even legacy, and not fruitfulness in business. And God, in His mercy, wants to wake us up to this reality through His word. 1 Thessalonians 1 9 and 10. I'll conclude with this. For they themselves report concerning the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Church, let's evaluate our hearts. Where have we run to other gods? Church, let's turn to God from idols as we wait with eager anticipation and hope of the risen Lord Jesus Christ that is gonna come again one day for us and delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray together, church. God, we thank you for your word. God, I pray for anyone in here that right now may be experiencing that severe mercy but they're walking through a hardship. God, and I pray that right now in your kindness, God, you would use that hard circumstance and you would direct them to you, Lord Jesus. And they would cling to you and they would hold on to you and praise you all the days of their lives. Even when you give them respite from their circumstances, they would still claim you as good and as Lord of all. And God, I pray for each of us in this room, Lord, would we now have a moment of confession to you, Lord, and repentance? That we would say, Lord, forgive me for chasing after headlong these things that aren't of you. And would you turn to the true and living God whose mediator is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's through his blood that he hears you now if you're a christian Lord we do we need you we ask for your forgiveness god we confess our sin Each of us are plagued with different things in our lives, God. And we say we are in great need of a savior. We are in great need of the mercy of God to be poured out on us. We're in great need of you redirecting us and pointing us to our Lord Jesus Christ when only him we can find forgiveness and healing and we can turn from idols and we can cling to the one true living God. So God, we do that here collectively this morning knowing that it's by your blood that we are healed. In Christ's name, we pray these things.